Greetings from the cosmic horrors. The stars are right once again. The great old ones are allowed to plow us to talk about 30 plus minutes. H.P. Lovecraft, the horror writer who is a genre unto himself. I'm your cosmic host, Mark Griffin, executive of Lovecraft Estate on Yagath, joined in by two from the material world, David Guffey, a professor at Miss Mattock University, and Richard Wilson, who is in fact a fast poisoner. <laughs> Our guest today is Andrew Goldfarb, aka the slow poisoner, the one-man rock and roll surreal band from San Francisco. Andrew, I understand your band was once called the Slow Poisoners and had five members. Did you kill off the rest of your bandmates? Well, I'll take you back to the beginning. The name of the band was uh, taken from a book called A Memoir of Extraordinary Popular Delusions in the Madness of Crowds uh, by Dr. Charles McKay, 1854. And it was a book about different instances of mass hysteria, like the witch trials, Tulipomania, if you're familiar with that, in Netherlands, people um, went crazy speculating on the value of, of tulips and lost fortunes, and it was like a frenzy. Right. Slow poisoning was one of these frenzies. French, mostly females, doing away with their husbands slowly, carefully. You know, you, you can get a divorce the regular <laughs> way. I just thought it would be a good name for a band. Um, so that's what I did. And um, there were five of us and it it really sucked. Having a band is like a marriage, right? It's like a, you know, a close relationship with people trying to make beautiful music together. Oh, my God. So it dwindled slowly. I, whether I had anything to do, I definitely had something to do with it. Yeah. Eventually, though, it was down to two of us, a duo. And then I had to take it all the way. Because uh, for singular weirdness of vision, you don't want to have to bounce it off another human being. That's why I've got him. <laughs> An inhuman being. I guess for our podcast audience, could you explain who him is? No, because the, the imagination fills it in, right? Okay. Okay. <laughs> right? Believe little mistake. You know, I think I rambled. I didn't answer your question. No, you know what? I did. But. Yes, I'll tell you about the future. So I've been playing as a one, well, I have been playing as a one-man band. In fact, Mark, this will be news to you. I've ditched the drum and the electric guitar. I'm actually a folk singer now. Me and just an acoustic guitar and a dream. But I realized that this is just a stage because I went from five to four to three to two to one. One is an electric percussive outfit, now solo acoustic. That means next, acapella. Simply my voice in the universe. I know a guy who does this in Phoenix, and it's the easiest setup. Because here's the thing. Once you get to be in your 50s, you don't want to fuck around with a bunch of gear. Imagine just doing a show with just your voice. He doesn't even need a microphone. He could do this on the street like a crazy person. But beyond that, beyond acapella, is the magic of mine. <laughs> and beyond mine, living statue. And beyond living statue, the final stage of my de-evolution, my simplicity, that is my goal in life, will be corpse on display. <laughs> like a Western gunslinger in the vaudevillian days. Just take me on the circuit, charge 25 cents for someone to look, right? And I don't have to do anything, I'm still getting paid beyond the grave. Well, hey, you got this pretty planned out, don't yeah. you? Passive income. That's, that's the lowest. You got to have plans. Just sit, lay there in state and be observed. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So, going back to your acapella, uh, have you been practicing to sing acapella? Can you do like this voice effects and all that? Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. You wanted a couple songs in this. Let's do one. 
It's not going to be purely acapella because I've got a vibra slap in the gloom, in the gloom, where the lonesome thistles bloom. Since you floated through the gate, here I'll wait. Weaver in the weeds, I crawl upon my knees. Since you left me here to ruin, down in the gloom, I wander far from home. Every road is paved with bones with each wagon wheel that turns my soul burns the sky above is black with no star to guide me back and every cloud is shroud here in the gloom, the moon is but a sliver shining down upon the river, where beside the muddy ground you have drowned. This world is but a wound, this earth. Just a tomb, but in the gloom, in the gloom, too soon. We're good. Nice. Applaud now. Yeah. Awesome. Now that sound you heard, the viper slap, is based on the sound made by a donkey jaw, because in the olden time. One didn't have such high-tech accoutrement as the Viber Slap, and one had to resort to killing one's donkey, letting it decompose, dry in the sun, and then when you slap its jawbone, the teeth will rattle. And I actually was performing with one of those. On my last tour, I had one, but I smashed it in South Dakota. Now it's on a wall. Mm. But I replaced it with a trash can, a dagger, and a lead eagle. A lead eagle? A lead eagle. I would show you, but it, that would be elitist because only people watching the video could see. But maybe this would be a teaser to get people to check out the YouTube. Do you want to see the uh, eagle? Sure. sure. Yeah, see the eagle. Or are we just seeking confirmation that I am indeed talking about a lead eagle? Well, I just I like to hear what it sounds like. If it's, if it's nearby. Well, yeah, I don't want to disturb the neighbors. We'll give it a soft rustle. Hang on. Okay. Anyway. I was sort of curious about the figure that um, Andrew has behind him. There's like this, like this, almost like a Herman Munster type thing. Wow. Yeah. All right. Lead Eagle. That reminds yeah, me of like this. Much a Lead Eagle. Okay. Yeah. Crash can and dagger. That Lead Eagle reminds me of like, of, um, I think my parents had something like that on their house. They had it attached to their flagpole, stuff like that. That's probably what it is. It's probably a Patriots fake bird. Yeah. 
Although, who knows what flag they fly? Could be a pirate flag. Yeah. And all that. So, uh, how did you get interested in the macabre and the paranormal? And um, I would say that that is responsible to Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Are the three of you familiar? Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. So for a certain generation, that explains it all because there was that monster craze in the 70s, which, uh, you know, that was so much a part of. And then you had the horror hosts on the TV late at night with the creature features but probably there was something deeper in my psyche that responded not everybody digs that stuff right but there it was in the culture waiting to be explored but then for it to become kind of uh, the way I live my entire life there was something deeper in my psychology probably a sense of being an outsider you know in general not even necessarily specifically to outsider to society, but maybe even to like existence, right? Which is, I think, what resonates for me in Lovecraft in particular. But I think with that state of mind, and, and partially probably not the most idyllic family background, you know what I mean? Like I think sometimes folks from truly loving parents or fully functioning parents will tend towards kittens and rainbows and clouds and pandas. But for me, it was vampires, vampires especially. Dracula, the 1931 Bolo Lugosi Dracula really made a big impression. And um, through Famous Monsters of Filmland, I discovered silent films because he kept the memory of Lon Chaney alive. And that got me interested in older stuff in general. And um, you know, that era of the silent film that coincides with a lot of the Lovecraft era as well. You know, I think that was a rich time for terror after First World War, probably that was a big part of it, right? But so I got interested in these older things and older sort of stuff. I've noticed it like an old time. Kid, it was really yeah. the, the Famous Monsters magazine. And then um, the in here in California, we had Creature Features and our host was Bob Wilkins, and he didn't have a costume, but he um, smoked a cigar. So that was pretty exciting. And he'd stay up late and watch it. And then he would make fun of the movies, but the movies were always great, you know. And um, that interest has definitely stayed with me. I still enjoy a B-horror movie from the 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s, 20s, teens. Actually, my favorite film is probably A Trip to the Moon by George Melier. Do you guys know that with the eyeballs, yeah, right? So that became a fascination for me. Uh, and I would rent um, Super 8 movies from the library. So you couldn't see this stuff on TV, right? And VHS tapes weren't out yet because we're talking about mid seventies. So I used to rent from the library Super 8 films. Did any of you guys do that or am I older than you? Uh, I'm not sure how much older you are than us, but uh, we I never had access to Super 8s or anything like that. Usually I had to wait to like some type of like special event, like the church would show like Abbott and Costello, you know, um, yeah, Frankenstein type of things, you know, they would have that. Yeah, well, we were upper middle class, so we had one. And I'm not saying you're not, but I'm just saying like it was something that upper middle class people had at that time, you know what I mean? And so I took advantage of it and I would rent like the entire like Intolerance by D.W. Griffith and I would spend like an entire day like threading the film, you know what I mean? And watching it and that kind of thing. 
so I started seeing like these older weirder movies like uh, Nosferatu and uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is also a real favorite of mine. Mm -hmm. And I think the art in that, the expressionistic artwork, um, you know, I think that's probably one of the things that um, I try to incorporate into my performance to some extent. You know, I, you've seen, you've seen it. I have paintings that go with it and props and that kind of thing. Okay, long-winded answer to your question, but I think I covered it. Back to you, Mark. Well, it's, um, you can't, when you talk about German Expressionism, it kind of reminds me of your art a little bit. There is a little bit of a hint of German Expressionism in your, um, your art a little bit. Not Yeah, well, that stuff is so freeing. For one, it doesn't look like anything real, right? So you're not restricted by whether you can actually make something that looks real. Because I, I can't. I mean, I, I, would, I would not be able to draw western stories about horses like they would look like monsters you know <laughs> and so it's very convenient that what i like is monsters and maybe you know maybe if i had been a cowboy with an artistic bend i would have like figured out how to draw a horse but for me all i need is the teeth you know what i mean and angry eyeballs and uh, yeah so the impressionistic part of german you know expressionism definitely makes it something anyone can do and then it was so on the cheap because they were so broke after World War I. They did it with cardboard and it looked better than anything you would do with a computer, right? And I'm finding that now with artwork. People like stuff that looks like weird and crude and kind of wrong because everything they get is sort of perfect. It's right. all digitally. Like, if, have you, do any of you guys read modern comic books or look at them at all? Yeah. yeah. They're, they're so good. Right. That I almost can't even see it. it it's like, I, I wouldn't be, it's not like a Jack Kirby where it's like, oh, that's that style with the giant blocks, you know what I mean? Or like, it's so refined and so well done that like, it's almost like, so what? Whereas stuff that's sort of outsider-ish, you know, that has like a bold, freaky aspect, I think people respond to now because it's so uncomputery. I, I, yeah, I, I do believe that there seem like a lot of the conflicts today almost look like animation steals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. done on a computer, almost yeah. computer generated versus hand, yeah. you know, hand drawn, that kind of thing. And it loses kind of that tactile connection that you usually would have, like the old comics. Yeah, and um, you know, folks even now are doing them digitally entirely using a tablet, so you're not even using a pen or or a brush, which is fine you know what i mean but it's so removed from anything analog um that i think for me it sort of loses the fun which is why i put out a magazine called freaky which is a kind of like a mad magazine style but punkier with various artists and i edit it and it's also got a little bit of a warren magazine influence stuff like creepy and eerie there i have some horror comics in there and there's also room for like sort of more avant-garde things like collage and uh, surrealism but anyway i put out a magazine twice a year and i shy away from stuff that's too computerized i mean i think we all use photoshop or a lot of us do to color things or to put things together you know but I like the look of stuff that's hand-drawn because you see that human personality, you see the mistakes. I think mistakes are really important. I prefer bad art. Like, um, again, a special treat just for the YouTube audience and the three of you. I'm gonna show you some monster stickers from the 70s. Oh, you yeah. can probably make that out. 
And these are so badly done. Amazing. All right, look at that. Look at that guy. Like, what the hell is that? And that's sort of the response that I think more art should elicit is what the, what the hell is that guy trying to do? Or gal? Or you, you know, keep it weird, people. Have you watched a, um, I guess, a video program called a Power Comics Book Club? <laughs> there you go. They um, they find the old comics from like the um, the 80s and the 90s, the kind, you know, the people, you know, were they like usually high school kids would draw like their own comic, you know, print out a few issues. They would yeah. find the stuff and read them and critique them and all that. And it's just amazing just to like, you know, you know, to see all this different type of art because, you know, it's like it's it's purely raw, imaginative. You know, they weren't guided by any type of art school, you know, you know, lessons. They were like just drawing how they thought it should be done. And it's just amazing just seeing this stuff. You know, I, I don't know how they keep finding this stuff. I was yeah, and being able to find that stuff is much easier if you've got physical things to find rather than just floating around in the cloud. I mean, Mark, you're a believer in that. You've been churning out. If you got all your printed matter together that you've produced in your time, that would be, you know, a fair shelf, wouldn't you say? It's a good collection of and stuff. And where would we be without periodicals, yeah. right? Are those authentic word tales? I do have three copies of Weird Tales. These are not from the 20s. These are from the 40s. But they do, I do see Ray Bradbury, Robert Block, Seabury Quinn. And so they, uh, these are reprints. Are these, are, are these the originals? These are the real. Wow. Nice. You can tell because they're in poor shape. They're pulp, as one would say. Um, again, this is a special for the uh, YouTube audience, but yes, it has those illustrations. Oh yeah, I love those. That stuff. are so amazing, you mm -hmm. know. Yeah, you don't you don't get artwork like that anymore. No. Well, there are still people doing amazing stuff. That's for sure. You know, what I mean, the talent is still there, but where can they put it? You know, um, the the comic artists that contribute to Freaky, and I used to be writing for Mad Magazine and drawing for them and a lot of other artists that did join me now because there's just no other place to get that kind of thing printed. You know what I mean? I think it's especially a loss that things like Weird Tales aren't around because you start with short stories. You know what I mean? Like that's the best way to begin rather than trying to write an entire novel. And there's so few markets for now. Well, I guess there's online, but it's a much smaller audience. You know, it doesn't, for me, like it just feels good to have something you can hold in your hand because what is all this? It's already like, we hardly exist. You know what I mean? For one, we're going to die. We sleep half the time, right? Like we're barely even here, but then something that's on a screen being watched by us that we're hardly here already. That's so non-existent, you know? I get you. I agree. So uh, which came first, your art or your music? I'd say the art. Yeah. Because you can start drawing, well, I mean, you bang on stuff. But yeah, I started drawing pretty early and uh, just self-taught, you know. I think Mad Magazine was a big influence. We had stacks of that around the house. And then once I discovered monsters, I started drawing monsters, you know. And then I was of the age to see Star Wars. When it came out, I would have been nine, which is like the perfect age for Star Wars. So I loved that. And then I got really into science fiction. I started reading science fiction, too. I was... I really loved uh, Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. And then very shortly after that, I started reading Lovecraft. But I think I started with Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. You and I must be 
about the same age because I think I saw Star Wars when I was nine or 10. Yeah, the 70s, in my mind, I look back at them and it's, when you talk about the uh, the old magazines, the monster magazines, you know, kids could get that stuff and swap it back and forth. And you're like, well, I know this is true. This stuff's true, you know, it's in magazine, and it's in this magazine. <laughs> and there was no internet to find yeah, out if it was true or not. No you know? And so it was like, you get all worked up because man, what if this is real? You know, so there's so many things like that. I remember from the seventies that are just, they're just gone now, you know, completely demolished by the internet. Oh, really? Yeah. Which I think was one of my motivations to try to bring something back and do a magazine and and have that kind of thing, because I th people respond to it because there's there's a desire for that. It's just economically not as feasible, so it has to be a labor of love. Yeah, Mark, what motivates you to put out uh, Quake every month? That's a lot of work. Uh, it's just something I've uh, kind of like you. I've just been motivated. They're like. Things I've been what I'm curious about, and I solve that answer, a question. Yeah. Or I get like inspired to write something. And so it's just kind of like my outlet to do things. You know, and well, the regular schedule probably gives you a deadline that forces you to motivate. And then also the fact that other people are seeing it kind of puts an additional element on it. You know what I mean? Where yeah. like it affects the kind of work you do. And, uh, if I, and if I wrote it for to the deadline as well, you know, I wrote it for myself. It doesn't for matter. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Some of that plays into my doing freaky and also with the um, playing music as the slow poisoner too, which should bring me to another song, huh? Sure. Okay. Yes. Yeah. All right. Going to grab a guitar. Now this one is semi acapella. The wizard in the woods has your name writ in his book. In the shadow of the limbs, all the creatures flock to him. Get with it, the weird wood spirit. Get up in it, the weird wood spirit. The giants of the land with their twisting tree trunk hands. In a kingdom built from leaves, raise your fist if you believe. Get with it, the weird wood spirit. Get up in it, the weird wood spirit. On the evening of your birth, tentacles up from the earth, cast a shadow on the moon. It was the warlock in the womb. Get with it, the weird wood spirit. Get up in it, the weird wood spirit. The heartbeat of a stone, red and steady as a rose. Fairy frolics in the park, down a path of black root dark. Get with it, the weird wood spirit. Get up in it, the weird wood spirit. Men can come with their machines, try to cut down all our dreams. But the wizard has a way, gonna turn their heads to clay. Get with it, 
friends i like that i really like that those are good uh, yeah that's how i open my shows and then when i say um raise your fist if you believe that's how i know how many folks are with me you know <laughs> how many fists go up and then it's like i know do you still include art in your shows you know you have like those like yeah time. i've got a painting for each um song and there's still like some crazy props and things yeah musically i've simplified just me and a guitar and so uh, when did you start working for, start drawing for Mad Magazine? Well, it was towards the very end of their run. Uh, almost immediately after I joined them, they experienced great difficulties. So that was <laughs> <laughs> an interesting parallel. There. <laughs> and I think that's how I got in, to be honest. I think they were a little bit in chaos. It's like, yeah, sure, we'll give this guy a few pages. But it was great because it's the only thing I could do in my life that my parents could recognize is like, oh, that's something. You know what I mean? People have heard of it, right? Yeah. So like, I felt like I had achieved. And briefly, after I got the gig, and I thought it was going to go on for years, I was like, I could hold my head up high for the first time and like look at people directly in the eye, not just be like a weird artist guy that's like, you know, asking for change. But then, yeah, <laughs> Warner Brothers shut them down, you know, because amazingly, they had... At the time, their um, circulation was 150,000, I think, which is really good for a magazine in this day and age. Mm -hmm. But it was not enough for Warner Brothers to feel like it was profitable. They were paying way too well. When I heard how much money I was going to get for a page, I was like, oh, my God, you guys pay well. And then it turned out to be twice that because I was the artist and the writer. So they were too generous with their cash. I um God, I pay one twentieth of what they pay. But then I only have a circulation of a thousand. They had one hundred and twenty thousand. You'd think you could make that work, but I think greed has proven to be a problem in the American corporate system. Yeah, yeah, definitely an understatement. Yeah. But don't they still do type of Mad Magazine? It's like almost like reprint. It's mostly reprint. It's like ninety nine percent reprint. Um, Johnny Sampson does a new fold in and they have a new cover and it's only by subscription in comic shops. So it's kind of on life support. They're just trying to milk the subscriber, you know, money. They have good people there that would love to do stuff, but they just don't get the budget. Their editor is great. But um, yeah, however, Australian Mad is a freedom fest and I contribute stuff to them and we get away with it. So that's got plenty of new material. So, Australia. so if you wind up in Australia, pick up a Mad Magazine. That's all I'm saying. So you missed your chance. You were there. Yeah. 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 Oh, really? You were in Australia? Right on. It was been a few years back. Seems like an eternity ago. Back in the, in the old times. The world has changed. That cosmic horror has come to roost. Yes. And so you contributed what? How many, how many, how many issues? Uh, there were three issues, three. yeah. And the second one was actually the last one on the stands. And then the third one was just by subscription. But I was proud to be in there. It was something really cool to brag about to other people. It's like, hey, I know this guy. <laughs> it had that kind of cultural, we don't get that much anymore. That's sort of like everybody knows about the same thing. You know, now we're kind of in our own little pockets, which, you know, I don't know if that's better or worse. It's just different. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, in general, I wouldn't say things are better or worse, just different. And I mean everything. Although I guess you could say in a pandemic, things are worse. I'm going to go with worse. But even in a pandemic, it shakes things up. I hope, I mean, in my life, for example, just having that much extra time to think, that made for some weird decisions that maybe I'll come to regret, (laughs) maybe not. Can you name one of your weird decisions? Becoming a folk singer. Moving closer to that living corpse. Because, yeah, prior to that, I had a big drum and electric guitar, and it was a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Also, more crime these days. So traveling around with a big drum in the back of your rental vehicle, not a great idea. Is that a big crime magnet or something? You know, criminals look at you and look like, okay, we're going anything, out. anything in the oh, uh, anyone that has anything in their car, it's gone around here. Like oh, wow. smashed. Yeah. Because we're fancy. We have fancy little devices that we leave around and then people smash the vehicles in San Francisco. That's why I have a junky car. No one ever touches it. <laughs> yeah, people see through that now, though. Anyway, that's a, a freaky magazine. Uh, was that response to working for Mad Magazine? You know, kind of like a... Yeah, I actually started it before I got the job in Mad. And I think that's what happened. That's how I got the job in Mad was because I was already doing it on my own. And I think once, you know, that's a good way to get a job. Like, oh, I'm already doing that. So basically, if anything I submitted to Mad that they didn't want, I could just run in freaky. So how did that come about? How did you, um, I guess, how did you orchestrate this? Well, it started sort of um, simple using print-on-demand. That's the big difference for us publishers. Is it print-on-demand? Are you going to have boxes of this stuff for a decade? And I opted for the boxes of stuff for a decade because uh, it's a motivator. You've got to have room to breathe. So you got to get rid of your boxes of stuff. So I make a thousand of each issue. But when I started, I just did 500. I was used to no one caring about what I did, really. I mean, other than you, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> audience of one. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but uh, people responded pretty well to it, so I kept doing it. And then when Mad folded, it was partially... It's kind of like what, uh, what we were talking about, how just a lot of stuff from the 70s is no longer part of the culture. I felt like this was something I could easily do. Like, if there were no more shoes suddenly, one of us would become a shoemaker, right? Probably. Like, I would. I like shoes. Shoes are interesting. Once you, like, take away, like, that idea that there's anything special about them, they're really just, like, cardboard or wood and, like, stitched together with, like, you know, duct tape anyone can make a shoe but that's another that's a different podcast <laughs> but anyway so i can make a magazine I like that i knew how to do it so i will you know i figured i would just carry the flag for a while and um so a lot of the artists from that now contribute to freaky but i try to keep it freaky i like your um see-through art that you do for that thing Sweet. Yeah, that was inspired by the mad fold-in. I was thinking, what can I do that's even cruder than a fold-in? <clears throat> and it was a see-through because it takes up two pages with very little art because half of it you can only see from the other side. So yeah, it's got a see-through. You have to hold it up to the light, let the sun shine through. All right, friends, we're nearing the 30-minute mark. We're actually a little bit past it. Um, what are the burning questions that remain? Well, you know, since it's a Lovecraft podcast, how was it Lovecraft an influence on you? I, I would say cosmic horror 
is definitely something that I think about on a daily basis. And that definitely was crystallized in my mind by Lovecraft. The idea that there's unseen vast forces playing us like pawns, right? You know, elder gods and just chaos looming, its tentacles dangling down from the heavens, you know, or from the sea. That great inky blackness of mysterious danger, that's real. That's why Lovecraft resonates. That's there. I mean, we don't know what the hell this is. And we don't know what's out there or in here or down there. And it is full of monsters. That definitely spoke to me. I think a subset of that, which I find really interesting and got more into later in life, is the kind of non-chronological causation in things like the Call of Cthulhu where two different events, unrelated to each other, but horribly connected. That also is real, and I think occurs. And I don't think it's all necessarily about, you know, being massacred by giant uh, monsters. I think there's good stuff too. But the idea that we, our window onto the universe is a narrow little pinhole through which we view and think we understand, that seems Lovecraftian to me, and that's definitely the case of us in the universe. And then in working in mysterious ways, like things being connected that you don't think are necessarily logically connected, that's also true in the universe, and Lovecraft, you know, exemplifies that well. So there you go. Now, you played at a place called, was it called the Lovecraft? Yeah, they changed their name uh, to the Coffin Club. And part of that was because they had some scandal there and they had to rebrand. Mm. But people had a problem with the racism. Yeah. Mm. Enough of a problem that the cancel vultures (laughs) emerged, you know, which I can understand. But there are other ways to deal with it, I think, you know. That's probably a whole conversation that you probably already had. We've had a few times. Before, yes, right? it's come up. <laughs> uh, so any, do any of your songs uh, are inspired by Lovecraft? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, in a sense, all of them. Like the world view of being alienated but intrigued by the natural world, you know, I think is Lovecraftian. I think that filters into just about all of it. Like the ones I played tonight, One is almost a folkloric murder ballad, but it gets at the idea that like the world as a place of like being beyond comprehension, you know, I think is first exposed to me from Lovecraft. And uh, the fairy tale element, like in my song about the wizard in the woods, uh, you know, that sort of idea that there's a cultism lurking underneath the veneer of civilization, that we're all animals, that we all have weird instincts and that we're in a situation just existing that we don't really, we don't get. And that there's probably a larger scale to it that we won't understand. And that's, that's Lovecraft. In Lovecraft's mind, it's a terrible, terrible thing. I don't know that it is, but it just is. You don't see like all the cosmic gods as being evil or indifferent. 
No, I don't think there would be necessarily. It would almost be more like a, was it August Derleth that had good gods and evil gods? One of them, I think, sort of, it would be almost more like that if you looked at it in a pantheistic way. I don't think, I think you could look at it either way. You could look at it as like one strange thing or like composed of a million strange things, but we won't know. We'll never know. We'll just feel stuff. We'll feel those tentacles emerging from the vast inky blackness of chaos. That's probably a good place to leave it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, thank you for your time and all that. And you bet. Box, it's been good so talking please. to you guys. Good seeing you too. Yeah, good I'll have to come back out. Yeah, Mark, next time I come to that neck of the woods, we'll do something. Yeah, uh, just let me know. Hopefully everything will be cleared up eventually soon and we'll go to do some Oh, fun. no, it won't. But we'll still get together. Yeah. <laughs> David and Richard and Andrew, I see the stars are no longer right. We must cease all discussions until they align again next month. 30 Minutes of H.P. Lovecraft is sponsored by the Slow Poisoners Evervading Miracle Elixir. This podcast was created in association with LovecraftPod.com, Logan Spectre Fiction Group, and with the help of the Logan High Public Library and the Great Old Ones. Special thanks to Katie Tyson for everything she does. And she's recently been promoted to direct the tourism board of Innsmouth. Good luck with that. And to meet again, may avoid the wrath of Pensis Cthulhu. <laughs>